Hey, good afternoon, Abundant Life. How are you? Is everybody doing okay? Everybody have a good Sunday afternoon? Everybody get a nap? You guys are doing well? You ready for a long sermon? All right, good, because it's a little bit, I got a lot of stuff to tell you guys tonight. And so we are in this series uh, that we have called With, and uh, again, if you weren't here, this is based on a book by that same title uh, by the author, Sky Jathani, and it's a book that some of our staff had taken a look at about a year ago, and then I read it on the plane to Ecuador about a month or two ago, and we've decided to do a series around this. And so I'd encourage you maybe to even get the book and check it out because it goes a whole lot deeper than what I'm able to, to do in just a 30-minute message. And in this series, the premise behind all of this is that you and I understand that we were created not only by God, but we were created for him. We were created for God to be in a relationship with him. Life is all about relationships. It's about relationship with God and, and with one another. But as we all know, because we're human beings, we have a, a good way of messing things up, don't we? we? It's very easy for us to get in there and mess things up and to make things more difficult than, than they are. And so this series with is actually a series where last week I began by asking you the question, to think about the question, what is your relationship with God like? And most people that answer that question, well, it's good, it's pretty good, it's all right, it's, it's okay, I think it's close or whatever. And people have all kinds of ideas about what their relationship with God is like. But this series is helping us to take a, a fresh and a new look at, at different ways we relate to God. And the first four that we're looking at are ways that I think I would describe as being ways that God didn't design for us to relate to him. He doesn't desire for us to relate to him in this way, but we, we tend to do that. And so if you were here last week, and again, if you weren't, I would encourage you to go get the message from last week. And we talked about how we relate to God from different um, postures, either for or from or under or over. And, and so we're looking at those postures leading up to the last message in this series where we'll look at what does it mean to live life with God. And so last week I gave you four examples and I introduced to you four people that I just want to take a second and go back and revisit to remind you who they are. There was Joel who lived his life from God. Joel, if you remember, was the fast living businessman who was afraid of losing his business because of an undisciplined lifestyle. And so this fear brought him to the pastor's office in the hopes of getting back on God's good side. And so people who relate to God from this posture, they want the blessings of God, but they're not particularly interested in God himself. That's Joel, life from God. And then there's Mark. Mark lived his life over God. Mark happened to be a pastor, happened to be a savvy pastor who, who leaned more into the organizational principles than he did into prayer because he didn't have much time and he didn't have much space for God. And so rather than waste his time on unproven methods or practices like prayer, he sought to control the growth of his ministry and the growth of his church by employing proven methods and living life over God. And then there's Rebecca. Rebecca lived life for God. She had dreams of going to medical school, but now those dreams are in question. And so she's primarily concerned about how to best serve God with her one and only life. And this perhaps is the most celebrated of the four ways of relating to God because of these four postures because the most significant life, at least she believes, is the one expended 
accomplishing great things for God. And so her greatest fear was living a life of insignificant. And so unlike those who wasted their lives on what she deemed to be less important careers, she wanted to make her life matter. And she wanted to make her life count for God's kingdom. And then there's Karen who lived life under God. She was the distraught mother who raised her son by the book. And she was quite upset that God didn't uphold his end of the deal. The life under God posture sees God in a simple cause and effect equation. We obey and he blesses. And so our primary role is to determine what does God approve of, what does he disapprove of, and live our lives within those boundaries and and we'll be okay. And so we seek to control God by our obedience and living under his authority. Well, all of those have this this element of truth and and, um, there are parts of them that, yes, obviously we live from those perspectives, but what is it God really desires for us? Well, what God desires is that we live life with him. And we saw how this truth is found throughout the scripture. You'll find it all the way from Genesis to the book of Revelation, from the beginning to the end, that God desires to live with us. And I showed you many different scriptures where this principle is pointed out. But one I just brought back was Matthew 123. I brought this one back because I like this. This, I mean, this is kind of this is the end of the Old Testament, the beginning of the New. It's Christmas, it's incarnation, it's God coming to earth. And why did he come? Why did God choose to do what he did? Well, Matthew 123 says, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they'll call him Emmanuel. And what's that say? Which means, and what's that God? With us, okay, God with us. Go ahead and write that, God with us. And so it's in this series that we're going to take a look at these four postures uh, from, over, under, and with, uh, for God and, and look at what these mean leading up to. What does it mean to live life with God? What we're going to look at today is life under God and life over God. So let's, let's talk about life under God for just a moment. Life under God is, is all about appeasing him. It's all about appeasing God so that he will bless us, okay? And that's what we have to understand. It's about, I'm going to please you, God, and in pleasing you, I expect you to bless me in return. And a great many people believe that this is how we should relate to God, to live under divine rules and to, in order to avoid calamity. You talk to many anthropologists and religious scholars, and they'll tell you that that is the basis for all human religions, that appeasing deities is essentially what religions have done. It's, it's just that we've become much more sophisticated in our day and in our time. Imagine with me, if you will, a small community of ancient people in simple, humble dwellings, just simply living off of the land. Their survival is dependent on forces way beyond their control. And so every year they ask questions like, would the herd stick to their normal migration routes this year? Would, would the rains come? Would the locusts destroy the crops? And, and rather than explaining these forces of nature through science, as later civilizations would learn to do, ancient people personified natural forces and link them with deities. For ancient people, the universe was not governed by laws. It was governed by wills. The ancients tried to make sense of a seemingly 
random universe by associating gods with the forces of nature and time. For example, the sun is a giant ball of hydrogen and helium radiating energy that is generated by the force of gravity. Well, people cannot control, nor can they argue with solar fusion. But a solar god, that's a different matter. And so spring didn't arrive because the Earth's axis shifted and more sunlight reached the northern hemisphere. Spring came because a god willed it to come. But the gods were capricious, and their goodwill towards mortals required rituals and even human sacrifices. And so religion became the way that people participated in maintaining their universe and even their own survival. Those who followed the rules, those who obeyed the rituals, those who appeased the gods were rewarded with blessings. Punishment, on the other hand, was reserved for those who didn't. Why didn't your fields produce as much this season as your neighbors? Was it merely bad luck or an inferior method to farming? Not according to the life under God posture. You were less blessed because your sacrifices did not please the gods as much as your neighbors. You see, in this scenario, religion is a way of understanding and controlling otherwise unpredictable forces. And of course, when you and I have a sense of control, we feel less afraid. Today, we may not offer human sacrifices to ensure that the sun will rise. I doubt anybody here today offered a a sacrifice in hopes that the sun God would allow the sun to rise today. But there are plenty of forces that remain beyond our control. How many of you have discovered that there are lots of things in your life that you have no control over? There are lots of things. And, And so we ask questions like, will my business turn a profit this year? Will my children make the right choices? Will the investment pay a return? And in the face of such uncertainty, like the ancients, we still refuse to believe that we are passive victims of chance. And so we want to believe that our actions can and do affect the world around us. So our prayers our going to church, our giving uh, in the offering, all of these can be a means of incurring the favor of the gods or God. One of the biggest problems with life under God is that it only reinforces the rebellion of humanity that we saw last week when we looked at Adam and Eve back in the Garden of Eden. If you recall from last week, they were not content to simply rule with God. Instead, they wanted to be like God and to assume a position of control. The irony of a life under God is that we, we are seeking to exert control over God through strict adherence to rituals, through obedience to moral codes. And through our obedience, we put God in our debt and expect his favor and his blessing in exchange for our worship and our righteous behavior. Let me give you an example. Steve Johnson. Steve Johnson um, was the wide receiver for the Buffalo Bills. And back in 2010, on on November the 28th, the Bills faced off against their rival, the Pittsburgh Steelers. The Bills lost the game when Johnson dropped a pass in the end zone during overtime. After the game, via Twitter, he publicly blamed God for the loss of the game. And so this is what he tweeted. 
quote, I praised you 24-7, four exclamation points. And this is how you do me? Three exclamation points. You expect me to learn from this? Three question marks. How? Three question marks. I'll never forget this. Two question marks. Ever. Four exclamation points. You see, the theology behind Johnson's tweet is a perfect example of life under God. Notice that in this type of relationship, the creature, Steve Johnson, assumes a position of authority over the creator, God. At first glance, the life under God posture, it's really kind of appealing, isn't it? I mean, it promises to take away our fears and it brings to us divine blessings. But it's doomed to failure. As much as we may we might want to control God, history has proven over and over again that God is notoriously uncooperative. Have you ever discovered that? Unfortunately, this happens in many Christian communities today. Many Christians are told that if they obey the commands of God, that if they worship him, that if they give financially to the church and they live morally upright lives, then God will bless their lives. But what happens When you keep your end of the bargain and God fails to keep his, what happens when it appears that following Jesus doesn't work? What happens? Matt Chandler, a pastor in Texas, said that this is what is contributing to the de-churched phenomenon. People are taught the life under God posture, and when God inevitably refuses to submit to our attempts at control via morality and ritual, they become cynical and they abandon the church, and in many cases, they abandon faith altogether. I've seen this happen over and over again in my 26 26 years of ministry just here. After all, following the rules and avoiding calamity is difficult in this world. And now I have to worry about getting God on my side as well. Now, let me ask you a question. Because right now you maybe are thinking some things. Let me ask you a question. Am I saying that God's moral instructions are bad? Am I saying that we should not follow God's rules? Am I saying that we should not follow God's laws, his commands? Would somebody please say no? No, no, no. That's not what I'm saying. In both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it is, it is unmistakably clear that God issues his commands for our benefit and for our protection. There's no mistake about it. One of my favorites, I could have given you hundreds, hundreds of, of, of references. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6 is, is one of my favorites. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him. If I'll do these three things, then what does God say he does for me? And he will make my path straight. Or another translation says he'll crown my efforts with success and he will make level paths for my feet. 
God's instructions were designed to help us to navigate this world in which we live. But when we use those instructions and when we use those promises to coerce God to bless us, then our fears are compounded rather than alleviated. In fact, this posture, life under God, dominated the Jewish culture some 2,000 years ago. The popular belief about God followed a very simple formula. God blessed the righteous and he cursed the unrighteous. John chapter 9 is a great example. Jesus encountered a blind man and his followers asked him the question in John 9 too. Rabbi, Rabbi, let me ask you a question. Who sinned? Was it this man or was it his parents that he was born blind? Have you ever done something wrong and somebody asks you, have you confessed all the sin in your life? I've had people actually, <laughs> have, have you, just get out of my face. What do you do? Yes, I've confessed the sin. And you see, in their view, blindness was a curse. It was a judgment handed down from God in response to someone's disobedience. And so Jesus quickly refuted their assumption in verse 3, and he says, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. In another scene, we see the opposite assumption on the part of Jesus' followers. After a very wealthy man declined and offered to give up all of his possessions to follow Jesus, Jesus looked at him and he says, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. These words of Jesus astonished the people that day who heard him. And the reason is because the popular belief was that God had blessed the rich for their righteous devotion. What do you mean it's hard for rich people? Obviously, you've blessed him because look at how rich he is. But Jesus declared the exact opposite. He said wealth can be a barrier to God and therefore not necessarily a blessing for him at all. You see, disobedience did not automatically mean calamity. And obedience did not guarantee success and material blessings as many of us have come to believe and as many of us here taught many times over. At every opportunity, Jesus dismantled the life under God posture of his culture. Let's talk about life over God for just a few moments this afternoon. Life over God posture. The life over God posture is all about living without God. It's about living without God and being free from fearful superstition of religion. How many of you remember John Lennon's song, famous hit back in 1971, Imagine? Imagine. In this song, John Lennon calls himself a dreamer who imagines a world without nations and without religion. Without these, he says, there would be, quote, nothing to kill or die for. If we could just get rid of nations, if we could just get rid of religion, there'd be nothing to kill, nothing to die for. Once ideas about heaven and hell and God are removed, it becomes possible to imagine all the people living life in peace. Many people would like to believe that the problems plaguing our world could be solved if we would simply put divisive ideas behind us, religion being chief among them, and then work toward a more harmonious future. 
That's what John Lennon sang about. And it also is a perfect example of the life over God posture. Humanity living without God. But this posture, this view of life over God, ignores one small problem. Human nature. Have you discovered that people are capable of horrific things? Even when they are fueled by a sense of divine imperative or they're not fueled by a sense of divine imperative. You see, removing religion or removing God does nothing to diminish our human capacity for evil because evil runs through every human heart. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things. It's beyond cure. Who can understand it? How many of you have had a hard time just figuring out why you think some of the things you think? Why you do some of the things you do? Why you go some of the places you go? The human heart is capable of some crazy stuff. And so if we remove religion, that, that particular motivation for conflict may be gone, but people will surely find other reasons to fight and to kill each other. But let's bring the life over God posture into the realm of Christianity. Let's bring it into the realm of those who claim Christian faith and even participate in a local church, but actually have the same life over God kind of posture. If you remember not too long ago, I did a series that we called, I Believe in God, But... Anybody remember me doing that? Good, I'm glad a couple of you do. And uh, I believe in God. And so it was a whole series that was kind of based around the idea that many people believe in God, but they actually live their life as if he didn't exist. And so I, I believe in God, but I don't pray. I believe in God, but I don't forgive. And, and, and lots of messages like that. In other words, we practice a faith that has little room or even any need for God. Like Mark, the pastor, who learned more, who leaned more into business principles than he did into prayer prayer. This way of relating to God could be traced back to a seemingly inconsequential event in 1666. Anybody here remember Sir Isaac Newton? Okay, the English physicist. One day as he was contemplating the nature of the universe in his garden, you remember, you remember what happened? He saw an apple fall from the tree. So he, he thinks, he wonders to himself, why must the apple always fall to the earth? Why not sideways? Why doesn't it ever fall upward? The, the, the fallen apple launched Newton's quest to define the law of gravity. Well, eventually Newton's work in physics and mathematics and astronomy inaugurated a revolution in scientific thought called the Enlightenment, which fundamentally changed the way people saw the universe and how they related to it. The, look at, notice the difference. The life under God posture says that the universe is sustained by the mysterious will of the gods or God. And so in this posture, humans seek to mitigate their fears by controlling the God who controls the universe by our moral, upright living, manipulating God. Notice the difference. The life over God posture says that the universe is not sustained by a capricious deity, but by predictable and rational principles. So now our need to control our environment and to mitigate our fears no longer requires appeasing God. 
Instead, this view sees the universe as a, as a big machine. And our job is to understand how the machine works, to understand the principles and the laws behind it all, and to leverage those principles in our favor. As you can easily see, post-enlightenment cultures have pushed God out of the space that he once occupied. Faith and religion have become marginalized and reserved for a few aspects of human existence that science cannot explain or control. As you can see, for some, this new understanding of the universe has done more than marginalize God. It has eliminated him altogether. I mean, how many aspects of our society today have just pushed God right out because we are so smart, we don't need him anymore? In, in fact, recent sociologists uh, have concluded that most people in the United States do not hold a traditional or biblical view of God. Most unknowingly subscribe to a form of deism where they affirm that God exists and that he even created the universe. But they also believe that he is now distant and relatively uninvolved in the matters of ordinary daily life. He's kind of like a watchmaker. He constructed the universe. He put all the required cogs and springs, the natural laws, in place. And then he wound it all up before stepping away from it. Now the universe just runs automatically without requiring his direct involvement. In other words, God simply has no bearing on one's daily existence. Life over God effectively cuts out the middleman and gives us direct control over our lives. One of the sinister shortcomings of this life over God posture is that it can, it can lead to reducing our faith and following Jesus to nothing more than principles, divine laws, and applicable instructions. In fact, we can even approach the Bible in this way. When the Bible is primarily seen as a depository of divine principles for life, it fundamentally changes the way we engage God in his word. Rather than a vehicle for knowing God and fostering our relationship with God, we search the scriptures for applicable principles that we may employ to control our world and our life. To say it another way, we replace a relationship with God for a relationship with the Bible. I mean, after all, if one has the repair manual, why bother with the expense of a mechanic? My son's working on a motorcycle in their garage, and my thought is, why not hire a mechanic? <laughs> I certainly wouldn't do that. Well, he's got a repair manual. He doesn't need a mechanic. It's the same way with us many times. Now, let me ask you another question. Am I downgrading the importance of the Bible? Somebody please say no. Really loud, say no. No, no, no. I'm not downgrading the importance of the Bible. Don't go out of here saying that George says the Bible's unimportant. That is not what I'm saying at all. Not at all. In fact, if you want to know what I believe about the Bible, this is what I believe. I believe the Bible is the infallible, it is the inspired Word of God. And those are very powerful statements. And it is the sole authority for our faith and our life. Now, through it, we discover who he is, and it does contain many applicable principles for our life and our faith. But in our zeal to honor the importance of God's word and to extol its usefulness, we may unintentionally do the opposite. 
we may reduce the Bible from God's revelation of himself to, to merely a revelation of divine principles for life. And we wouldn't be the first people to fall into that trap. The religious leaders back in Jesus' day, the, uh, the, the, um, the scribes, the Pharisees, they were experts in the law. They had memorized the Hebrew scriptures, okay? They, in fact, what that means is they memorized the entire Old Testament. They memorized the entire Old Testament. But their mastery of the scriptures had not resulted in actually knowing or recognizing him when he stood right there in front of them. In John chapter 5, verse 39 through 40, Jesus says, You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. You see, it's entirely possible to live our life by biblical principles given by God without ever having a relationship with God. He may be praised, he may be thanked, he may be worshipped for giving us his wise precepts for life, but he's nothing more than an absentee watchmaker. And God's presence and his participation is altogether optional in so many people's lives. And so the life over God posture, it may be appealing because it's far more predictable and manageable than to actually have a relationship with God. Why is that? Because relationships, whether human or divine, are messy. Aren't they? How many of you have experienced a messy relationship? Okay, they're messy, they're time-consuming, they're frustrating, they're often uncontrollable. Principles, on the other hand, are comprehensible and they're clinical. Maybe this explains why a 2005 study found that only 3% of pastors listed prayer as a priority in their ministry. If he's, um, if he's already given us the watch, why bother maintaining a relationship with the watchmaker? Ouch. I just got back, Ann and I went and saw um, War Room the other day. In fact, I, I cried through the whole stinking movie. I mean, I, I, I eventually had to pull my handkerchief out and just leave it sitting on my, on my lap. I'm just sitting there. We, we, we went into the movie theater, and we sat down beside some lady who had horribly strong perfume on. It was horribly strong. And, and I said, it is strong. Let's, let's move. And, and there was lots of space in the theater. So we moved like all the way to the top, which was great because <laughs> there's nobody up there. You can see I'm just up there crying through this whole thing because this, this really, this really you, know, you know, speaks to, to me. And so, so our insatiable need for control is what makes life over God so attractive. And it's this need for control that is inevitably it's linked to fear. As, we, as we'll see in every one of these postures of relating to God. So as I wrap this thing up uh, this afternoon, let's look at very quickly at the shortcomings of life under God. Shortcomings of life under God. Here's number one. It does not solve our fear problem. All it does is make us afraid of God. It doesn't solve our fear problem. It just simply makes us afraid of God. We're afraid of God because I'm trying to appease him and, and I'm afraid I haven't done enough to appease him so now he's not going to bless me. In fact, he's probably going to curse me. He's going to get even. with. I mean, come on, tell me, is there anybody here you feel like you did something wrong and you just know God's going to get you? And so you, you live in fear. It's, it makes us afraid of God. Number two, it does not connect us with God. It reinforces our rebellion. 
Through our obedience, we put God into our debt and we expect him to come through for us. And when he doesn't, we conclude that Christianity doesn't work, that, that God's a liar, that he doesn't care. It's all a sham and we just walk away. And again, I see that happen time and again. Number three, it burdens people under the weight of guilt and fear and empty religion. People are burdened under that, under guilt and under fear and empty religion. You see, the problem with life under God is that it can be summarized in the words of the prophet Isaiah, which, by the way, is is whom Jesus quoted when he was refuting the religious leaders of his day. In Isaiah 29, he says, these people, they come near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. You see, you remember the Pharisees, right? The religious leaders who promoted and they benefited from the corrupt religious system. Jesus reserved his harshest criticism for these people. They came up with this list of laws and rules. I mean, there were hundreds of them, hundreds. All the Old Testament, they, they delineated all these rules and regulations and all these requirements that they placed on the people. And they came to be referred to as a yoke. And so Jesus comes along, and in contrast with the heavy yoke other teachers had placed on the people, notice what Jesus says when he comes along in Matthew 11. Come to me, all of you who are weary and you're burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light." Following God, relating to God, was never meant to be something that put us on a guilt trip or was difficult or something that weighed us down. Shortcomings of life over God. Number one, it reduces and it limits God to a reproducible formula. It assumes that that the way God has worked in the past is how he's going to work in the future and indefinitely, and that once we've discovered the principles, once we've discovered the laws that run the universe and and govern God's actions, then and we begin to employ them, now we guarantee the outcome. And God always, and God never, and God only, and God has to. Let me ask you a question. If you are in control of your outcomes, where does that leave God? Out of control. Here's another question for you. If you are in control of the outcomes, where does that place you? In control. I mean, that, that means ultimately that you are responsible for every outcome in your life. You're ultimately in charge. How's that working for you? The reality is you and I were not designed to do that kind of heavy lifting. Number two, it does not take away the burden of fear that we carry. Living life over God where we think, you know, we figured it out and we really don't need God. We kind of marginalize him. It it doesn't take away the burden of fear that we carry. While, While promising to alleviate fears by giving us control of our lives through proven and even divine formulas from the Bible, it actually saddles us with a degree of responsibility we were never intended to carry. The need to manage every variable, control every outcome, and to ensure that we are following the prescribed formulas only makes fear more potent. Here's number three. It exchanges a relationship with God for applicable principles. It exchanges a relationship with God for applicable principles. That means God's part was done once he gave us the principles. 
Life under God, life over God. It's not what God desires. What God desires is that we do life with him. With, as I said last week, it's such a small word, yet it contains the essence of the Christian story, the Christian message. Both of these approaches to relating to God, under him or over him, they leave us tired and they leave us worn out. And so Jesus, again in Matthew 11, would you read this verse with me as we close? Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. God, my, my prayer uh, tonight is, is that you would forgive us when we relate to you in ways that you never intended for us to relate to you. God, would you forgive us when we try to appease you by being such righteous people and then we sort of have this expectation that we've placed upon you that you're to bless us. Would you forgive us, Lord, of that? And would you just, Lord, help us to own the fact that we're just trying to control you. And God, would you help us to, to understand when we're trying to live over you. God, would you forgive us when, when we have, in a sense, just marginalized you. We've just pushed you out of life to the point where we've got it figured out and we really don't even need you. We've got your principles. We don't need you. God, would you forgive us of that? Would you forgive us of the pride and the, and the arrogance to think that we could live a minute of a day without you? Lord, forgive us of that. Help us, Lord, to, to understand what it means to live life with you. Lord, as we continue to journey in, in our walk with Jesus, help us to learn what it means to live life with you. Some of you may be here this afternoon and you've never opened the door of your heart to Jesus and you've never asked him to be your savior and your Lord. And so as we close out uh, tonight, I'm going to ask if that's your desire, would you repeat this prayer after me if that is your desire? And for those of you who've made the decision, would you also join with me? Father in heaven, today I thank you for Jesus. Jesus, thank you for coming to this earth and dying on a cross and paying for my sin. I surrender my life to you and I ask you to be my Savior and my Lord. Help me learn to live life with you. I pray this in your name. Amen.